Thank you. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, wonderful. Um, I'm glad you told us to silence our cell phones because I, I was actually, mine was on. And it would have been kind of funny if the speaker gets interrupted by his own cell phone, I think. Um, it's an interesting setup we have in here today because I have no podium. So I have nothing to lean on. I have no way to hide my legs and my lower body, which you know is quite, quite exposing, right? Um, so hopefully my zipper is zipped. And uh, <laughs> I won't check right now, but I'm just making an assumption. Uh, good thing the lights are a little dim here, so you can't really make out uh, my face as well. Um, I, I guess I have two options. I can sit down and present, or I can kind of walk around. And I might just walk around. This is a really interesting setup. We have a lot of people here, which is uh, pretty awesome. Thanks for all coming again right after lunch, which is you know, really hard to do because, I mean, I, let's face it, we, we uh, me, myself included, would love to sort of move to Spain and take a three-hour nap after eating. And uh, I always ca catch myself around uh, 1.30 to 2.30 yawning, especially even when I'm with patients, and it's just that you know, insulin surge. Uh, so thanks for coming. I'll try to keep it entertaining and informative. I'll try to keep you awake. If I find you sleeping, I will absolutely point you out to the whole audience. I'll look at your name tag. And, no, I won't do any of that stuff. Um, but I will walk around. And I, you know, before we get started, I guess I, I always try to find out who's in my audience, um, just because I'm interested, right? I, I appreciate you guys coming. I, I uh, do take that as a humbling compliment when people are willing to listen to me blab up here. Um, maybe because you have no idea how good or bad I am. Don't know yet. Uh, but I do want to find out who you guys are. So in the audience right now, how many people are physicians? Oh, wow, good amount. Okay. How many are nurse practitioners, PAs? Okay. Uh, pharmacists? Uh, physical therapists? Uh, acupuncturists, holistic medicine? couple. And patients. How about just patients? People coming here just because they want to learn more. Anyone I've missed? Any? Nurse. Nurse. Sorry. Right. Nurse. Dentist. Okay. Did you raise your hand too? Yeah. Nurse. Okay. Anyone else? Psychologist. Sorry. I missed that category too. Hey, I'm nervous. Look at it. I'm exposed. Okay. Give me a break. What's that? Social work. Okay, social work. Anyone else? Yeah. Device wow, device design engineer. That's cool. That's cool. What, what, what devices do you design? Okay. Right, neurostem. All right, very good, very good. Well, thank you all for coming. Stem cells, regenerative medicine, how many people... Um, have an idea of, of, this, of this field, this regenerative medicine field. Okay, how many have, have actually provided regenerative medicine care to patients already? So a decent amount, well, probably about, uh, probably about maybe 10, 10 to 20%. And, and how many people in the audience right now, um, you know, really here because, because you've heard about this but don't really know much about this space? Okay, so Actually, probably, probably more, probably maybe a 25% of the audience. Well, that's what we're here to do today, is to really clear, for the, for the people who are coming here, who are like, hey, listen, I've heard stuff about this, good and bad, I really would like to get more information. And also for the practitioners as well, who are already providing services, I hope this presentation addresses 
both of your interests and concerns and, and, uh, um, and, and you learn something from it ultimately. So the title, Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine. Um, I uh, practice in Illinois uh, as well as in Michigan and, uh, um, and the practice name is National Pain Centers. We have done a lot of stuff when it comes to um, stem cells and regenerative medicine dating all the way back, well, if you look at just stem cells actually dating all the way back to about 2012. So, so a long time in, in this particular category. Regenerative medicine really since the beginning of, of practice, which was uh, almost 15 years ago now. Um, I don't have anything to disclose for this particular presentation. Uh, what we're gonna do today uh, is really review sort of this idea of what is inflammation um, you know, some basics around what is pain, uh, talk about regenerative medicine and define it in better detail for you, describe the different types of stem cells that are uh, present, discuss autologous stem cells and non-autologous stem cells, as well as various non-stem cell regenerative products, and finally discuss some of the challenges that we have right now in the regenerative medicine field. And I think this is very appropriate to talk about. You know, I've given this lecture before, um, and every year it, it's, it's a little bit different. But I think now is a great time to really spend a, a significant amount of time, uh, probably about maybe 25%, 20% or so of the lecture, talking about the challenges, because this is probably one of the biggest things now that's holding us back um, from, from progressing uh, with this field. All right, so the first thing that we, uh, when we, when we get injured, when we have pain, you know, one of the first signs of that pain is the inflammation that follows. Pretty basic statement, right? So, uh, so we all know what inflammation is. Um, you know, inflammation can be caused by physical, chemical, or biologic agents. And we usually feel that type of inflammation in the form of, you know, inflammatory pain, heat pain, redness, swelling, a loss of function. And, and, and it has a huge impact. As we all know, when things get inflamed, our ability to function goes down. Uh, our appetite goes down, or sometimes our ability to heal actually fundamentally goes down, causes us stress, affects our ability to sleep, to concentrate. You know, I've always wondered, and I don't know if someone has an answer, I'd love to hear this answer, but this is one of the questions I'm going to ask, um, you know, in my next life or whatever it is, <laughs> when I go to that other, other place, um, hopefully not for a long time. But why is it that when we're sick and we need to rest, and we need water, and we need food, why is it that our bodies do the exact opposite? Does anyone have an answer to that? I, I seriously don't. You know, why is it that when we're sick, you know, when, we're, when we have a high fever, we lose our appetite, we start throwing up, we get dehydrated, right? When we have a GI problem, right, the, the last thing we need is to have less, you know, food. Anyone? No one has it. Okay, that has nothing to do with this lecture. I'm just curious. <laughs> Um, what, is, what is regenerative medicine? So this field of regenerative medicine, you're going to see in the title, I saw, you saw stem cells and regenerative medicine. Those are not necessarily the same thing. Regenerative medicine is describing this whole entire category of medicine called regenerative medicine. And within regenerative medicine, we have stem cells as one option within regenerative medicine. So they're not necessarily the same thing. Regenerative medicine is a branch of medicine that deals with the process of replacing, repairing, or restoring normal tissue and function. And regenerative medicine also includes the possibility of growing tissue and or organs in the laboratory and implanting them within the body um, so the body can heal itself. It does involve stem cells. It can involve growth factors, and it can involve the whole combination of, of both. So here are some regenerative medicine therapies. And we split those things up into two separate categories. Category number one is called the healing environment, and category number two, 
we will call the cellular product environment. So within the healing environment, we have things like anti-inflammatories, right? NSAIDs. You've all heard of those. Multiple different NSAIDs. Not all NSAIDs are created the same. That is a completely different lecture, so I won't get into that here. Um, steroids. Obviously, many types of steroids. Again, not all the same. Synthetic hyaluronic acid. Um, many different types of hyaluronic acid that are injectable. Probably over 20 different types that are readily available on the market. Each one has multiple different properties. Again, won't get into that. That's a lecture in and of itself. PRP, or platelet-rich plasma, uh, that's been around for many decades. It's still used very commonly, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little more detail today. Amniotic fluid liquid suspension, which we'll also talk about. Uh, amniotic fluid plus uh, uh, different types of extracellular components. Wharton jelly liquid suspension. Cellular pro products include lipoaspirate concentrates, bone marrow concentrates, umbilical cord blood, and umbilical cord mesenchymal stem cells, or MSC. So PRP, I think you've all heard of that. Um, we've all heard of it. A lot of people have actually probably, uh, in this audience right now, have, have uh, provided their patients with PRP therapy. So what is PRP? Platelet-rich plasma. What does that mean? That means we take your own blood and we spin it down, and, and when we spin it down, that blood must have at least seven different types of growth factors to be considered PRP. So that blood gets spun down, and you can see in this little uh, picture over here, that's what the tube looks like once the blood is spun down. You have this top layer of plasma that looks kind of yellowish. You have this little tiny uh, um, white layer, which, which has white blood cells, and then you have the bottom layer, which is red, has red blood cells. It's that top layer, that uh, yellowish layer, that's the plasma. That's the, what we use when we use when we are providing PRP therapy. Um, and we take that white uh, or that yellow uh, uh, plasma and inject it in, in wherever it is that we, we uh, deem that it needs to be injected. So it's a patient's own blood. It contains growth factors. Um, uh, those growth factors can trigger inflammation, collagen production, and other regenerative processes. It's been used, again, for over 30 years, so it's been around for quite a while. So what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? Why don't we just keep using this, you know? It's uh, uh, one of the advantages. It actually becomes, it's actually one of the cheaper options that we have. Um, so it, it's, it's relatively cheap. It's obviously available. If you have blood, it's available. It's autologous. It's your own blood. It's not someone else's blood. It's your own blood. And it can be reproduced geographically. So, you know, if we have the same equipment to harvest, you know, obviously anyone can draw blood. You have the same equipment. There's multiple different centrifuges on the market. Again, whole different conversation, but uh, depending on who you ask, their centrifuge is better than the other one. Um, but in any case, if you have a very good quality centrifuge, uh, you can reproduce the results uh, pretty much anywhere across the globe. So why not use this everywhere? Well, there are some significant disadvantages, and especially when we start talking about the other regenerative medicine options that are available, we start seeing some of those disadvantages uh, rear their ugly head. Number one, side effects could include things like swelling uh, at the site of injection, increased pain and stiffness, and even infection. Remember, we're drawing the patient's blood. We're not sterilizing it in any way. We're not heating it up in any way. So whatever is in that blood we are taking whatever, you know, if it's a virus or a bacteria or, or, you know, whatever's in that blood. And, of course, there's always a risk of infection, right, anytime you do any procedure. But outside of that, we're taking whatever's in that blood and we're re-injecting it. But we're re-injecting it typically into spots where a lot of blood doesn't necessarily go. It's the whole point of doing any of these procedures. You know, whether it's just regular interventional pain management, injecting steroids into a certain area, or whether it's PRP or stem cells or whatever, we're putting those products in areas where the sun don't shine, <laughs> where blood doesn't normally go, 
And that's the whole reason we put those things there. So if we are now also introducing, uh, you know, agents of infection in those areas, not only are we putting those agents of infection at a higher concentration in those areas, remember, blood doesn't typically go to these areas or, or for whatever reason is having a harder time going to these areas. So your chance of defeating that infection actually goes down, right? So you do have a chance of infection. Uh, you have unwanted products such as white blood cells, other cytokines, inflammatory cells, and like I said, infections that may um, uh, be introduced. But there are also a lot of other questions about PRP. One of which is, hey, um, you know, which, which centrifuge do we use? Which one is the best one? How many cc's do we put in of this PRP? You know, what does that PRP even have? Because every single person has different components in their, in their blood. So, so we have no standardization of saying, hey, this person, you know, these particular growth factors will always exist and these won't. Um, if it's effective for osteoarthritis, should it be used in the early stages or should we use it after every other option is done? Right now, as we all know, a lot of times PRP and regenerative medicine is being used when everything else has failed. Is that the right way of doing things or should we do this in the beginning so we don't have to introduce all these artificial chemicals and treatments uh, and, and just use sort of this so-called natural you know, uh, ways of treating? Um, what is the optimal concentration? Should we spin it down more? Should we spin it down less? What's the optimal volume, as I mentioned before? Should we add other things such as thrombin into the mix to allow for better utility? Um, what frequency should we inject? Should we do this every day, every week, every month, every year? How often should we do this? Um, what rehabilitation protocols do we use afterwards? You know, these are all questions that are very debated, very, you know, um, uh, really unsure. There's no, there's no right answer, okay? There's no right answer to these questions. And, and because of that, we see the vast variation with these treatments. And that's one of the biggest reasons if you start, you know, asking around and people start saying, well, I don't know about that PRP stuff or that regenerative stuff or whatever. The big variability is exactly that. Um, it really is dependent patient to patient, provider to provider, and product to product. So let's talk about stem cells for a little bit. Let's talk about the history of stem cells. Um, and I think this is important. You know, the history of adult stem cells uh, research began about 40 years ago, uh, especially in, in this country. And some of those uh, cell discoveries that we had in the, in the 60s and late 60s included um, the fact that we had two bone marrow concentration of uh, populations, uh, the hematopoietic stem cells and the bone marrow stromal stem cells. And then we also saw in rat models that they also had um, different um, uh, regions of cells, of cells, dividing cells, which became nerve cells. Stem cell discoveries in the 90s, we started uh, discovering that there were neural stem cells that were able to generate uh, in the brain into three major, major cell types, and those were astrocytes, oligodendroglial cells, and neurons. Uh, types of stem cells, there are three major types of stem cells, um, and most of the time, for, for our purposes, we, we really won't be uh, um, seeing or utilizing things like totipotent stem cells, which are really cells that are there in the first three day, uh, days of development. And these are cells that can develop into a, an entirely new individual. So these are not cells that we're using. Pluripotent stem cells are cells that can form in over 200 different types of cell types. Some of these cells are blastocytes. They can be, uh, they're present uh, usually in the first couple weeks of, of conception. So again, these are not cells that we're commonly going to be seeing. And the multipotent stem cells are cells that are differentiated but can form a number of other tissues. Uh, those can be fetal tissues, uh, cord blood cells, and adult stem cells. 
These are really the types of cells that we're most likely going to be seeing. I think it's important to note for anyone that may be listening or anyone that's in here that has even a, a, a slight bit of doubt about what kind of cells we're using. Uh, none of these cells, okay, none of the cells that are used in America, none of the cells that are used in any type of research um, currently or in clinical practice are, um, are fetuses that have been crushed up, right? Everyone knows that? Okay. I was just asked that question, no joke, about two weeks ago uh, from a patient. Um, she wanted to confirm that we weren't crushing babies and using those. Uh, and I, So it sounds funny, but it's, it's actually not. There are still a lot of people who think that that's what we're doing when we talk about stem cells, and that's uh, not true. So I just wanted to clarify that in case there was that doubt. Potential uses of stem cells, obviously, number one, basic research. We still have a lot of research to do. And uh, this is one of the big limitations, uh, uh, back and forth limitations we're having with the FDA right now, where the FDA wants to uh, classify stem cells as a drug, um, whereas you know, but, but we are not drugs, we are individuals. Um, so that, there's, again, probably a conversation for another day, another time, or after this presentation. Uh, but that seems to be one of our biggest holdups right now is, um, you know, is this a drug? Well, it's, it's not a drug, but the FDA wants to treat it as a drug because they want to standardize treatment. I don't blame them for that. Um, so there's a lot of research that's needed, both basic research as well as clinical research. Um, biotech companies and biotechnology um, is another field of, of interest when it comes to cell, uh, stem cells. Because, you know, again, taking everything else aside, um, uh, you know, all the politics aside, if we can differentiate cell, uh, stem cells or we can use cells that can be effective in certain types of new drug development, we can now have greater efficacy and lower side effects. And then finally, cell-based therapies. Obviously, we, we have those clinically available right now. Regenerative therapy, stem cells and gene therapy. Again, we're not getting into any politics or you know, ethical debates right now, but we're just talking about in general where can these be used. Stem cells and therapeutic cloning and stem cells in cancer. And when we're talking about therapeutic cloning, we're talking about organs and things like that, not cloning people. Uh, and then, of course, stem cells in cancer. Homologous cells and tissue products, or HCT slash P, uh, is an abbreviation. Uh, first in the 80s, were, um, uh, the FDA asserted authority over human tissue. And then around 1993, the FDA created two pathways for regulating homologous tissues and cells um, with a statute called Part 1270 of Title 21, which is the Codes of Federal Regulation. And under there, there are two sections, Section 361 and Section 351. Both of those uh, really dealt with how the FDA addresses um, cells and how they address um, biological products that are derived from living tissue, as well as products that are manipulated. So one of the statutes clearly states that, that all these cells and all these tissues have to have minimally manipulated cells and minimally manipulated tissue. Okay, and that's, that, that right there, okay, this is important. I mean, this is more than just sort of a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, like, okay, hey, here's some laws that passed or some rules that passed. This is the big sticking point that we have clinically when we're talking about stem cells for human use. Are these cells that we're using, are they minimally manipulated? Are they not minimally manipulated? Are they manipulated more than what the FDA thinks or less? And, and, and what does minimally manipulated mean? So again, another debate, but that's, that's truly the big problem we have here. It's all open to interpretation. Um, now, obviously, you can look at, you can read all this, and you can say, well, no, I, I read it, and I, I know what minimally manipulated means, but the problem is, is two separate people read it, and they interpret it differently. So autologous stem cells, pros and cons. Uh, some of the pros of autologous stem cells known as MSCs. 
we know where they're coming from, okay? Uh, number two, reduce risk of rejection or inflammation. These MSCs are immunoprivileged cells. Uh, number three, there's a reduced risk of uh, bacterial viral transmission in general. Um, again, you know where they're coming from. Cons, well, it requires surgical procedure. Um, whether it's a uh, bone marrow aspiration or lipoaspiration, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, additional capital uh, is needed, disposable surgical instruments, time. Okay, it requires time to be able to, to, to harvest these cells. Potential morbidity complications, obviously you're harvesting cells, so you have a theoretical chance and, and a real chance of th things like bleeding, infection, even uh, you know, during the process of harvesting. What if someone hits a nerve or nicks a nerve or you know, causes some type of neuropathic pain or something like that? So these are all real issues. Lipoaspirate produces uh, about 5,000 to 500,000 MSCs per cc. Uh, bone marrow aspirate is somewhere between 30 to 300 MSCs per cc. So about, about a hundredfold difference or so per cc. Adipose-derived adult uh, mesenchymal stem cells. Um, this is actually the technique that we use, and, and we've used this for about seven years now. So we have a, a decent amount of experience with um, adipose-derived stem cells. And, and those are actually real pictures from, from uh, one of our harvests. Uh, so these are used, these are the, the patient's own adipose tissue. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if patients are, are very skinny, we, we have limited amount of fat that we can derive. Thus, we, we have potentially limited amount of stem cells we can derive. Um, so one, one of the benefits, one of the benefits of having a little cushion is uh, there's some more stem cells that we can, uh, we can uh, harvest. So one of the jokes that some of our patients say when they come in and, and they look a little like me, they're like, so should I just go eat a ton of hamburgers and, and uh, wait for a couple months and, and get a harvest? Uh, mesenchymal stem cells may differentiate into other cells like we talked about. It could be bone, cartilage, tendons, ligaments, as well as muscle and other um, neural tissues. And the number of cells... Transplanted into damaged tissue may or may not alter treatment uh, outcomes. So we're not sure about this, right? So how many cells do we have to actually inject into a certain area? Let's say we're trying to do the knee. The knee tends to be one of the most common, commonly injected joints when it comes to regenerative medicine. Um, do we put a million cells in there? Two million? Five million? Ten million? Does it matter where those cells come from? If they're autologous or non-autologous? Does it matter which product we're using? Um, the answer is yes. I just don't necessarily know the answer to that. No one really does. Uh, and again, one of the big challenges with this field, we, we all know that, that how these work, but which one's actually better? And it's, it's really hard to do you know, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized trials because everyone's knee is different. In fact, your left and your right knee are different. Everyone's cells are different. Everyone, I mean, so you see where I'm going with this. Everything is different. There's no way you can compare the two directly without any variables. Bone marrow aspirate concentrate. So uh, this is um, harvested by, by doing a bone marrow aspirate, right? Just like um, you, you guys have probably seen these bone marrow aspirates, especially in the hematology, oncology world. Uh, these are done very often. Um, and that's really how it's done. Uh, a big trocar goes into the bone, uh, you know, drills a little hole into, or you kind of, you know, drill uh, with your hand a little hole in the bone, and, and you suck out uh, some marrow so you can uh, collect the... the uh, marrow, spin it down, and, and get stem cells. Um, same concept, once you spin it down, you have, uh, you have these, this, this solution with cells, and, and you inject it into 
whichever area that you think needs to be injected. Non-autologous products, so non-autologous cells. Uh, here are some of the pros and cons of those. So some of the pros of non-autologous, so non-autologous, everyone knows what I mean. That means it's not coming from that patient. It's coming from somewhere else. There are high concentrations of MSC. Sometimes we can get higher concentrations with non-autologous. Sometimes we get higher concentrations with autologous. Again, it depends on the technique. It depends on how it's harvested. It depends on how it's processed. Um, these are, a lot of times, umbilical cord-derived um, products. And uh, sometimes you can get up to 2 million per cc, 2 million cells per cc. They're epigenetically young. Um, you know, again, placentally derived. So, so they, they get these umbilical cords, obviously, from donations when there's been a healthy live birth from a, a, a mother and a kid who, who don't have any type of uh, infections, viruses, or other diseases. They're quick. They're easy to reproduce. Uh, there are uh, tons of live births that are happening in America and happening around the world every day. Um, in, in most cases, those placentas are thrown away. So we have all this you know, all this valuable product that's, that's thrown away. And so, um, so, so that's, that's a shame, right? Uh, so these are quick, easy to reproduce. Uh, there's no, no surgery involved. There's no extra capital expenses except for once these, uh, once these placentas have, have obviously been donated, uh, they have to be shipped correctly. They have to be processed correctly. So there's that expense. There's no other surgery. Um, no direct known complications. Again, the complications would be just with things like infections and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, cons, well, obviously, like anything else, there's a risk of bacteria, risk of infections, okay, at any point along the process. Um, there's uh, uh, logistics, handling concerns. I mean, they, they, you know, it is, it, I, I've actually seen, I've actually toured facilities where they, um, harvest uh, the where they process the placentas and the umbilical cords, and I'll tell you, I mean, these are big processes, and everything has to be done really well. And there are some places that do it better than others, and we'll talk about that at the end of this conversation. The products, you know, to if you have real cells and you want to keep them alive or you want to keep them, you know, viable, you're supposed to keep them at negative 200 degrees Celsius. Anything less than that, then you may actually have cells when they're thawed that they, they don't work. Negative 200 degrees Celsius is, is, is quite cold. It's a little like Chicago. <laughs> um, so it, 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 it's important that those are kept that way. And if they're not, then you can have cells that are either, one, not going to work as well when they're thawed, or two, um, if they get warm enough, right, it's ripe for infection. And, and you know, as a, as, a, as a physician, as a provider, if anywhere along the supply chain it thawed and then it, it sort of froze again, you're not going to know. So you may have a, a cells that you think are sterile and they're no longer, you know, clean. Or excuse me, not necessarily sterile. They don't, go, they don't undergo any type of sterility process. You can't sterilize the cells because you'll kill all the cells in the process. So, so you have these clean products that are supposed to have no infection, but if you let them thaw, they may develop, an, uh, you know, an infection, and then, and then you may inject that by, you know, without knowing. Um, allergenically available products, so there are umbilical cord-derived MSCs, there are umbilical cord tissue matrices, um, there are amniotic liquid suspension and amniotic membrane products. The umbilical cord-derived MSCs, uh, we kind of just talked about those uh, with, with um, what we just described. There's umbilical cord tissue matrix, and those are...
um, really not, those are matrices. Those aren't stem cells. They're, they're sort of growth factor matrices. They have hyaluronic acid, cytokines, growth factors, and proteins. Um, amniotic liquid suspensions, uh, they were used uh, primitively uh, for a while. I, I think most people are getting away from those because they found that they're really, they're very poor in a lot of uh, sort of factors. Um, and amniotic membrane, and the actual membrane. And so these are used mainly in wound and soft tissue repair. Uh, and if, if you have not, again, I, that's not the focus of this conversation, but if you have not seen some of the before and after results with some of these amniotic membrane procedures, it will blow you away at how well the regenerative process actually works. Um, truly, I've never seen anything like it in traditional uh, wound repairs. Wharton jelly is a mucous connective tissue within the umbilical cord, and it's rich with uh, MSCs. So this is one place where uh, MSCs are um, harvested. It also has other um, uh, proteins in the Wharton jelly, and together they create a nice little um, MSC slash protein mix. Um, Mesenchymal stem cells derived from Wharton jelly, there are some advantages. Uh, one of the advantages uh, include the fact, again, there are so many millions of births that are, avail that are um, happening every single year that we have all these cells and all this Wharton jelly and all this product that is uh, really going to waste in many situations. So we have an abundance of product. <coughs> product. The question is, can we uh, actually create a reliable supply chain to be able to use that product? Number two, again, no surgery involved. Um, uh, it can be easily collected, and uh, these are immunoprivileged cells with uh, theoretically no tumor, tumor, you know, no no tumor-causing properties. Okay, uh, these are non-cancer. So one of the questions that we one of the questions that we get often is, are these cells going to grow into tumors? Uh, we currently have no evidence that that happens, um, unless, of course, you infiltrate a tumor with cells, then obviously uh, we don't know what will happen. So some of the benefits of mesenchymal stem cells. Um, one uh, is their property to, the, the potential to migrate to sites of inflammation caused by tissue injury. Now, well, how does this happen? Um, there's a couple proposals right now. Uh, are stem cells actually the products that are healing, or are they creating a healing environment? Are stem cells actually cells that are proliferating and repairing tissue, or are they causing the body to repair itself through, um, through exosomes, through cell signaling, through cytokines? Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, uh, it's probably a little of both, uh, but, uh, but that is definitely one of the, the debates right now. And, um, um, but, right, but we do know that for, for whatever reason, um, they can be helpful. We still don't know if they're actually differentiating into cells that we want or if they're actually signaling other cells in the area to differentiate. We're not quite sure which process is winning. Uh, the potential to differentiate into different uh, cell types, as we just said. Obviously, the, um, uh, the, the, the big prize at the end of the day is going to be if, if we can actually develop cell lineages that we know are going to develop into bone or develop into nerve tissue or whatever, that's going to be huge. Uh, nerve tissue, you know, for spinal cord injuries, for example, if we can dictate that cells are certainly going to be differentiating into uh, nerve tissue and repairing those kind of injuries, you know, we may be onto something very, very significant. The potential to release different bioactive molecules that can stimulate uh, recovery of injured cells. And, and then finally, as we kind of uh, started this lecture with inflammation, the ability to potentially reduce inflammation 
and accomplish the immunomodulatory functions. So one of the problems that we see with delayed healing is actually that, that delayed inflammation, that persistent inflammation. And if we can reverse that process, we may be actually able to heal better than we would have otherwise. Umbilical cord blood, uh, a lot of people you know, have heard of this, and a lot of people have saved their cord blood. Um, but when we're buying cord blood, okay, so there are companies that sell cord blood, and, uh, and they're specifically selling the stem cells from that cord blood. Um, there are, the advantages are we may actually see some larger numbers of cells, but the disadvantages um, are that, uh, number one, they're pooling blood. Uh, so they're pooling blood from multiple sources or multiple donors. So, so that's, that could be a problem. Um, number two, uh, this may be considered more than manipul- minimally manipulated because they are combining and then they're refining. Number three, um, these, these large quantities of cells that they claim that they have, many of them may not actually be stem cells. They may be other types of cellular products. And, and so we may not really be seeing all the stem cells that we think we're seeing. And then finally, when we do see all of those cells or those stem cells, uh, we're not actually sure how effective those stem cells might be because they may be more hematopoietic stem cells um, and, and they may not be as useful, say, in musculoskeletal diseases. So when we look at umbilical cord versus um, uh, matrix versus umbilical cord blood, again, we're looking at two separate things. We're looking at um, uh, cells themselves and how good are the cells themselves versus the matrices, versus the, the um, hyaluronic acid and the cytokines and all the other proteins that may be persistent um, within those different matrices. So some other uh, concerns with umbilical cord products, graft versus host disease. Again, if we're dealing with blood and we have any contamination of those, that final product with the blood, we can see graft versus host disease reactions. And this is obviously a big deal because the complications that uh, uh, follow are pretty serious. Acute graft versus host is in the first three months and then chronic uh, develops uh, three to six months later. And this can be a big deal, especially if we're dealing with, with um, um, cord blood products and stem cells. Amniotic membrane, we talked about that briefly, but it is a universal donor. donor. We use that more in wound management. Um, amniotic membrane, uh, when we're talking about just a membrane, is not something we're using, um, say, you know, um, uh, when we're injecting in the knee or, or something like that. It's really used for more when we want to use the actual membrane. Um, amniotic fluid, uh, again, not really used too much anymore. Um, uh, mainly because we found that it's really not the best source of of high-quality proteins and high-quality materials. Uh, The prices prices have not traditionally been cheap, and a lot of people have found that PRP is probably a better source than the amniotic fluid. Remember, the amniotic fluid is the part where the the baby pees and poos, right? Uh, So that all has to be cleaned out, and you have to say, okay, what what are we actually left with? Anything anything good in here? Uh, And... um, um, so anyway, people still use it, but it's not really considered to be a, a high-quality source of, of regenerative medicine. There are uh, multiple different cell differentiation units that are out there, and if you're going to be doing this regularly, especially if you're going to harvest, uh, you need to have these basic, uh, this basic equipment. It includes cell counters, flow cytometry, and cell expansion, and that's really more for uh, when, when we're talking about banking cells, uh, which is, again, a whole separate topic. Banking cells is really something that... Um, uh, the FDA has, has kind of stopped over the last year where people can bank their own cells. And one, again, one of the reasons for that is, are those cells yours? Do they belong to you? Or are they a drug that the FDA regulates? Um, that's the big debate. Um, 
differentiation between different cell types. So this is also important to know when we're looking at what kind of cells do we have. So how do we know if these cells, these stem cells, are actually real stem cells or actually going to be effective? Well, there are three proteins that we've identified, um, which are CD73, CD90, and CD105. And uh, they need to be present to identify MSCs. So if you have a group of cells and, and they don't have these markers, uh, it's possible that these are not really good MSCs or, or MSCs at all. And, and, and there's markers that identify mainly hematopoietic stem cells or white or red blood cells or epithelial cells. And those are CD14, CD34, and CD35. So if we see high concentrations of those, we typically assume that those cells are really not um, cells that are going to be very useful for us. And finally, um, one last protein that's been identified that seems to be uh, really one of the big um, uh, missing links, I guess, with, uh, uh, when we're talking about growth factor products is HCHA-PTX3. So it's a um, um, high concentration hyaluronic acid. And products that contain um, high levels of hca PTX3 seem to potentially offer better benefit than, than products that don't. Um, and so I just want to introduce that term to you. Obviously, that, that right there uh, could be a, a 10, 20 minute discussion into um, uh, how it's more, how it could be beneficial or how it works. Um, I'm happy to talk to you about that afterwards. So let's talk about challenges to regenerative medicine. I had told you in the very beginning of the lecture that. One of the biggest uh, issues we have uh, with regenerative medicine are these challenges. Now, we talked about FDA restrictions. Again, what the FDA is doing, I think, is great uh, in the sense that they want to make sure that um, people are not, you know, you don't have these rogue clinics um, practicing bad medicine. You don't have these rogue companies producing bad products. They want to try to offer some type of, of uh, stability and some type of accountability. But that, that also gives us some restrictions, because right now FDA is preventing a, a lot of uh, different therapeutic modalities uh, as a result of that. Insurance coverage, uh, we're seeing very spotty insurance coverage, so that's an issue. Uh, physician variability and provider variability, um, seeing a, a whole bunch of issues with that right now. We're seeing a lot of clinics popping up uh, that are um, uh, really, you know, they make the news, right? Anytime someone does something bad, it makes the news. You could have 100 providers doing awesome work, and then one does something bad, and that's the one that makes the news, not the 100 people that do a good job. Um, but a lot of people are, are, are it's really making a, a lot of news where people are ripping off patients, you know, uh, not really providing them real care. Um, they don't know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more. Product variability, I'd alluded to that before. I'm going to give you a couple examples in a minute. Uh, false claims, again, I'm going to give you a few examples in a minute. And counterfeit services and counterfeit products, I'm going to give you a few examples here as well. So there are a few companies that are in hot water. Uh, the FDA sent out letters <clears throat> just recently uh, to 21 different companies to try to rein in the stem cell industry. And they did this, uh, again, because they felt that maybe some of these companies were making false claims, uh, maybe they were producing products that were not um, meeting the standards that they should have met. The two of the biggest companies were uh, Livion and Mimetics. And they seem to have made the news quite a bit. Have any of you ever heard of any of those companies? A few of you, okay. 
there, there, there were really uh, two pretty big players in the field, and Mimetics was actually one of the biggest players uh, in the field for a long time. Uh, they're publicly traded, and they're trading at a very high valuation. They're trading at, at just a, a minuscule fraction of that now. So um, uh, there have also been a lot of practices, you know, uh, providers that have been in trouble with the FDA as well. And most of them have been chiropractor clinics um, where, um, where they were marketing, you know, cures and they were claiming that they, you know, 93% of people were fixed or whatever. They're making all these false claims and all these grandiose claims, uh, taking out big, you know, ads in the newspaper, full-page ads, doing these little seminars um, and, uh, and making claims that just weren't true. And then, of course, you know, chiropractors can't inject, so they would hire, in many cases, uh, um, uh, unemployed physicians to, to do these injections, which they had no qualifications to do. And that was a major problem. It's been a big problem uh, from a practice side because uh, that's what makes the news. So anyone who starts Googling you know, stem cells or whatever, uh, these are the articles that come up. And, and uh, so rightfully so, patients become very wary of, of the whole legitimacy of, of, the, of the field. So Livion, um, these, are, these are now, everything in here are quotes directly taken from news articles. None of this is my material. This is directly taken from the news articles. And I wanted to make sure I did that to ensure accuracy. Um, none of these are my statements. So Washington Post headline was, quote, miraculous stem cell therapy has sickened people in five states. Uh, Livion's products were tainted with E. coli, infected with, uh, included their premier Max CB product, their Regen 5, Regen 10, Regen 30. At least 17 people were hospitalized with severe bacterial infections after being injected, and at least 60 patients were infected. Uh, one patient required hospitalization for about two months, another one over one month, and this was reported in CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report as of December 20th, 2018. Uh, in addition, Livion products were not FDA approved. The Livion CEO, he pled uh, guilty to defrauding the military healthcare system and was barred by the SEC in 2014 for material misstatements and fraud and deceit. Uh, this is uh, not related, by the way, to any of the stem cell stuff. This happened way before the stem cell stuff. The stem cell stuff all in the last year. This was before he even came to the company. He was also part of a $10 million Ponzi scheme. Uh, Livion's medical director is a podiatrist. Uh, who doesn't even hold a medical license. He was reprimanded by the Arizona Podiatry Board in 2007, and Livion specifically markets to chiropractors. Mimetics. Mimetics Group injectable wound care products did not meet regulatory standards for multiple factors, including purity and sterility. This was more than uh, two years. By the way, this is also from the Wall Street Journal. Okay, these aren't my comments. This is directly from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this was more than two years after the company told the FDA it had complied with requirements according to internal documents. As you can see, I'm staring directly at the screen. I'm reading word for word, okay? Uh, just want to make sure you all, you all know that. <laughs> Investigation confirmed malpractice. My medics announced in 2019 that an independent audit committee concluded its 15-month review of certain, certain sales and distribution practices. The committee said the company will have to restate its previously released financial statements for fiscal years 2012 all the way through 2016 and three-quarters of 2017. The company was also rocked in 2017 when whistleblowers claimed it had engaged in years-long campaign of fraudulent revenue and reporting and deceptive business practices, including something called channel stuffing, which is when you ship more products to clients than they ordered, and then you credit... Uh, crediting the revenue before it's paid. So it looks like you shipped out a ton of stuff, and on your books it looks like you shipped out a ton of stuff. And then so your stock price goes way up, and then, you know, all the guys at the top take out huge profits, and the 
you know, and then when the stock collapses, the shareholders are left with a bag of rocks. They kept less expensive products from the VA, um, so they didn't sell the VA those cheaper products. They, they, they sold them the more expensive products. The smallest size federal hospitals could obtain was 40 milligrams, costing $725. Private hospitals were offered a 20 milligram for $225. Its practices are also under investigation by the Justice Department, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Security and Exchange Commission. In addition, we're not even done yet. This is just the second company. Uh, my medics disclosed that an investigation conducted by its audit committee found that Parker Pettit, who is a director of intelligence systems and a member of intelligence systems audit committee, had engaged in accounting fraud during his tenure as CEO of my medics. The SEC uh, filing said that uh, Petit and the chief operating officer also launched a campaign to discredit and fire employees who raised concerns about the business practices. The campaign, quote, focused on potential wrongdoing by these employees rather than the merits of their allegations, including video and audio recordings. And uh, a lot of these shell companies were set up in Asia. There are the senior officials were aware of at least 50 other instances of patient complications using their products for adverse events uh, that were reported to the company provided more detail. And they had side effects, things like infections and inflammation. Um, uh, three of those patients were hospitalized. One had to have a toe amputated because of their products. So why do I bring this stuff up? Because it's this kind of stuff that's preventing legitimate providers and legitimate companies from providing legitimate products and services. Um, and, and this is uh, probably one of the biggest challenges, again, in the regenerative world. You know, the idea that that we can heal, the idea that, that our own bodies can heal and, and, and products that, that human bodies make uh, that are specifically meant for healing can, can do their job, that's not really a, 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 really a, a wild thought. We, I mean, it's, it's obvious, it's logical. The issues are, again, understanding the science behind it, making sure that it's done correctly, making sure that we use products and services that are, uh, that are legitimate. And with that, I open it up to questions and answers. Thank you very much. Yeah, so the question is uh, human growth hormone as part of regenerative medicine. Um, no, specifically didn't include that um, simply because um, uh, we tried to leave out all, all hormone therapy, all other sort of therapy. We're only looking at uh, uh, just growth factors and uh, things that contain growth factors and stem cells. Uh, but obviously, good point in the sense that there are many other medical treatments that can contribute to the healing environment. Ah, so the products to prevent adhesions, is that the question? Yeah, so a lot of products. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll split up and answer into two components. Um, we found that um, um, both, both, and we're not sure exactly which exact component, but we think it's HCHAPTX3 that can help prevent adhesions. Now, that may be present in both stem cell products in certain stem cell products, but we know it's present in certain growth factor products because of its derivation from umbilical cord and amniotic membrane. Um, and 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, the, the, the thought is that if we, can if we use those products perioperatively, we may actually reduce the risk of scar tissue development and adhesions postoperatively, which may dramatically change outcomes. Uh, we see that when we use membrane and, and wounds. When those, when those areas heal, they don't heal, heal like a big glob of scar like they normally do. They actually heal. They're actually somewhat pretty, if you will, relative to what they would be. And um, uh, I, do have, I don't have them here, but I do have pictures of those, uh, <coughs> of, of various um, wounds that have healed specifically with amniotic membrane. It's, it's unbelievable when you look at how scar wasn't developed. And it was more of like this regular tissue that, that it healed with. A hundred percent true. In fact, I hope I never need surgery, but if I do, I will only pick a surgeon who uses this product perioperatively. And I mean that. It's not supposed to be funny. Um, because um, it, it, it's a hundred percent true. I mean, I, last year I gave, uh, I think it was last year, uh, one of the lectures I gave was failed back surgery syndrome. And I published on that in Pain Week Journal, just uh, I think it appeared in March of this year. Um, under the best of hands and the best of conditions, failed back surgery is 20 to 40 percent. Okay, under the best. Now, now, obviously, if you don't have the best surgeon or don't have the best candidate, it's even higher. If you can prevent that, the, you know, ha half the audience will be out of business, right? Because, I mean, let's face it, like, surgery is, is 25 to 50 percent of, of all pain management business because they all develop scar tissue. They have to, to heal. But, the, but, but what if we could create tissue that wasn't this gar garbled up mess, but it was actually an organized tissue, and, and that's your, so you hit, it's a great point that you hit, which is um, these products, you know, you don't always have to use them way in the past or way in the future. You could use them during the surgery to try to reduce the chance of scar tissue and increase the chance of normal tissue healing. And that will dramatically change outcomes, right? If you have no scar tissue, but you have normal tissue that heals, dramatically change outcomes. Yeah, there have been studies that have, done, that have been done um, where people have used you know, amniotic membrane in various things. Uh, the eye has been incredibly well studied. Um, and then um, uh, podiatric literature as well, the, the foot for ulcer, ulcers and things like that, that's been well studied. So those two have been incredibly well studied, incredibly well published. And, and, and some of that data has been out for more than 10 years even, uh, where you've, you've literally seen you know, like corneal replacements uh, uh, um, you know, those can, those can cause a lot of scar, right? Or, or t burns on the eye can cause a lot of scar. Using, using, certain, using certain products, they've been able to see healing without scarring. And, and patient's vision is intact, right? So. Any other questions? Oh, it's on. Okay. Is there a possibility now or in the future, most likely in the future, uh, replacing organs like kidneys that have had polycystic kidney disease and injecting with stem cells and or after surgery removing a, a tumor that was space occupying and then stem cells to regrow uh, neural uh, brain tissue. 
Um, with cancers, uh, I mean, it's 100% right now no-no uh, because, yeah, so any, any cancer is no-no. With organs, we're so far from organ cloning, but that would, that would definitely be, that would be great, but we're so far from that. Right now, the FDA would, would not even remotely consider that as a possibility um, because it's not considered minimal manipulation. You'd literally have to change all the statutes. Um, but could that happen? Yeah, it could happen. Obviously, if it's a genetic disease, then, um, then you're going to have limitations in terms of using the patient's own cells because potentially you could redevelop the same disease. But, um, but organ cloning is, is um, uh, you know, autologous organ cloning is, is something that probably could be done now if, we, if, if, if they re- remove the restrictions. But, but with the current restrictions, that's like nowhere on the horizon. No, not right, not, not, not right now with stem cells. So, you know, those, those life-saving techniques are, you know, maybe a life-saving drug or some new life-saving medical device. But, but with stem cells, we're still uh, beholden to really what, what the FDA says. And, and violation of that puts clinics into serious jeopardy financially. Um, and, and it's really the clinics that are the ones that are going to bear the brunt of it. Um, and, and that's why even if a company develops that, no physician is going to potentially put their whole license at stake to do that. So we, we still have some serious issues in terms of protection of, of, of legitimate physicians trying to help people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Th- th- this is why. Yeah, it's, it's, it, this is why. And, and I think they're doing that because they're trying to protect. Because you got to remember, for every guy that you're talking about, there's going to be a schmuck out there trying to make $50,000 on a kidney replacement in a back alley using a pig's kidney. And, and I can promise you that's going to happen because I could, I, I, with things like, Things like this kind of stuff and counterfeit medicine and stuff. I've lectured that for that years. Counterfeit medicine talked about for 20 years. I mean, the you know we see a lot of the this, the stuff behind the scenes of, of for every every you know whatever 10 good guys, there's one bad guy, right? And and it's that one bad guy that's going to ruin it for everyone else. And so the reason FDA is doing this is because they they know this just as well as anyone else. The minute they do that, how do you regulate who gets to do that transplant? And the problem with this is now this is universal. This goes beyond stem cells. The problem is that the, the government, the FDA, uh, state medical boards, no one can tell one physician you could practice this way, but the other physician that you can't do this, because then they will get sued for torturous interference. You used to be like you're interfering with my business practice, and that's that's the big rub. That's the big problem. There's no law in that, that sort of czar-like law that says no, you're a good guy and you're a bad guy. I don't care what you say. It doesn't work that way. You have a medical license to practice. You, you can do, it's buyer beware. You can do a good job or a bad job or ethical job or an unethical job. And until that patient dies, you just call it practicing medicine. And this is the big problem we have across America. And so the FDA comes in and says, well, I'm just going to prevent everyone from doing it because we're trying to protect that, you know, everyone from that one guy or gal, to be fair. <laughs> That, those are the main areas, but I mean, they're, yeah, those are the main areas, but we, they've been used for so many different types of disease states uh, beyond that. I want to make sure I get everyone else, though, real quick. 
Oh, wait, hold on. Let me, let me actually, I think you were first, right? Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering what are some of the more reputable companies? So, yeah, the question is more reputable companies. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to say it because I don't want to endorse anyone or anything. Uh, I mentioned these two companies uh, because they are absolutely the two biggest companies that are in the news. And, and it's anyone in the industry who's been doing this knows about their issues. Uh, and I think everyone should be aware that they're out. I mean, every, every, again, everyone knows about these who's been in the industry. But I don't want to talk about other th who, who I use or who I don't use uh, simply because I don't want it to appear that I'm promoting them. So I hope you respect that. So, so for intractable arthritis of the knee, for example, so the stem cells with hyaluronic acid, I have my mother has intractable arthritis. She's tried everything, every other injection, but nobody's ever suggested those types of injections. Really? Yes. And so I've been asking her to ask her physicians, and and nothing ever comes back. Is it a matter of reimbursement? I mean, how? how she, does she's that in America, work? I'm assuming. She's not American. But no, she, but she's in America, right? She's in this America. is this is right. Yeah. Uh, and and so, she she has Medicare, I'm guessing, or. Well, right now she has Kaiser. Oh, okay, so that's a problem. <laughs> it's but Kaiser. But how would it be out-of-pocket procedure like that? Um, because even if I, Medicare I, doesn't, may not reimburse it. Yeah, but, but I'll, okay. And she's let's, from Europe. She has medical let's, care in let's, Europe as well. I am happy to tell you how the Kaiser system works when I'm off the mic, if you want to hang yeah. out afterwards. Sure. Okay. Yeah. We yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we, I, we actually, um, I haven't published this yet, but uh, this is about four years ago. We started looking at uh, stem cells. So we, I, I did multiple injections in the disc with, with both stem cells as well as growth factors to, to, try, to and try to see where it would go. And, and there are some other publications that have already come out. It's mixed. It's mixed. Uh, but some people did notice that they had some benefit. Some said no benefit. Um, um, I think there's promise, but it's not it's not it's not the miracle cure. Uh, we've seen we, we've also treated uh, multiple patients with multiple sclerosis. Some saw no change, and some saw remission for up to two years. So, so it's all over the map. But 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 again, remember these are patients who have failed every other treatment. So and also, like she said, I don't we don't hear. I work in a pain practice with a lot of orthopedics and spine, but we don't hear people, orthopedist or anyone or, or neurosurgeons or anyone promoting stem cells. Um, so I mean, there, there are a couple reasons. I mean, again, you know, we'll talk, Kaiser's its own unique beast. Right, but this beast, is just but, general. But just yeah. in general, I mean, I think there's, there, there are sort of three. You know, number one, you, you have the physicians who will say, well, look, uh, it's still considered a, quote, experimental, uh, and um, they don't want to provide a treatment that, um, where, where the data is still mixed. And I, I understand that. I respect that. There are people who are the pioneers and the people who are like, hey, listen, 10 years after everyone else has proven it, then I'll start incorporating it. I get that. Um, then there are the ones that um, simply haven't done their research, don't understand it, and they just kind of practice more on myths and stuff like that. And you know, they'll say, oh, stem cells cause cancer or something like baloney, right? And so you have that. Um, number three, um, you know, maybe, the, you know, maybe, like I said, maybe they... Uh, know about it, but they don't want to be the pioneers in it. Maybe they know about it and they've heard some weird myths and they haven't educated themselves. Maybe they simply don't know about the options that are out there. Um, I, I can't imagine how a high-level orthopedic surgeon or something like that has no clue what the options are. That's pretty embarrassing if that's the case. 
And then number four, it's, uh, look, all of the stuff, sure, you know, people had to pay out of pocket. They had to pay out of pocket maybe, you know, whatever thousands of dollars they have to pay, which is a lot of money for an individual. But when the insurance company is, is, is reimbursing you for a fusion surgery or knee replacement or whatever, look at the total cost of that. Exactly. 50000 100000 I mean, it depends, right? It just depends on what your level of complications and rehab and all that stuff. But it's not uncommon to be in the well into the six figures after everything is said and done. Absolutely. And insurance is paying, so patient's not, so patient doesn't give a crap. They're like, oh, well, Medicare covered all of that at a $20 copay. So the patient doesn't care. The patient's like, hey, the knee replacement or whatever is cheaper. Back surgery is cheaper, $20 copay. Physician gets paid way more. But look at all the suffering and time. They don't care. Someone else's problem. It's, it's a pain person's problem, right? So now we have right. to manage this catastrophe, right. and we're pulling out our hair saying, my God, you know, like, this could have been prevented. And, 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 you know, and, and now for us, as, as you all probably know, I mean, it's just sitting there every day trying to make sure they can get through the next month without getting worse. It's not, in many cases, we're not getting them better. Like once you've replaced the knee or, or fused the back or whatever, I mean, you know, at, at that point, stem cell, none of this stuff is even an option. And we're always looking for therapies to get people to get better without opioids and other things. So, right, yeah. right. Well, you, you know, one of the, uh, uh, and this is actually one of the articles I have, uh, well, I've, I've written an article about this already, and then we're going to write a, a, an even harsher one sometime soon. But um, I wrote a couple articles. Uh, um, <laughs> it's called The Stupidity Epidemic. So um, one of the things I think, uh, one of the titles was, What's Worse, The Stupidity Epidemic or The Opioid Epidemic? And obviously, the Stupidity Epidemic, because the opioid epidemic doesn't really exist. Okay, people aren't dying when they're taking legitimate prescriptions from legitimate providers, you know, and not mixing it with alcohol and everything, right? People are dying when they're doing stupid things. And that's, the, that's the truth. Nobody wants to say it because it's not politically correct, but it's the truth, you know? I mean, y y y there, are pro there are actual products out there, branded, legitimate branded abuse insurance products that have been out for years that have literally zero reported deaths with taking just that product as prescribed. Zero. Zero. It's crazy, right? So anyway, one of the big sources of the so-called opioid epidemic or addiction is surgeries. And nobody talks about that, right? There's like, oh, you horrible pain doctors. Like, wait, hold on. We didn't start this. You butchered that person. And so now they're on pain medication because, quite frankly, if they're not, they're going to jump off a bridge. What's that? Yeah. Suicide rates, as we all know, have more than doubled in the last you know, five to ten years, right? Um, yeah, with, with, with uh, and by the way, I'm not an advocate for opioids or anything, but I'm, I'm an advocate for just logic. Okay, so, so when we have suicide rates that have all continued to go up because of lack of appropriate pain management, because everyone's scared to manage patients now, um, when I say, you know, literally that, that, hey, listen, we're just trying to keep the patient alive. I, I'm not joking. You know, the more people are dying from suicides, and, and this I publish, I'll, I'll, I can forward the article, more people are dying every year because of suicides than legitimate opioid overdoses, right, from just opioids. And actually, when you, when you really split the data, and, uh, the, the deaths are probably not even a few hundred. Uh, it's pretty low. Uh, mo all the deaths we see with opioids are people doing dumb things, you know, either mixing with alcohol, not taking as prescribed, taking counterfeits, illicits, you know, stuff like that. So people are killing themselves. And so, but who started this problem? Wasn't me, wasn't you. It was that surgery. And after that surgery, they got put on a ton of OxyContin, and then now, now look at them. I want, right? Some of those things could have been avoided. Sometimes you can't. But, um, but there is a huge profit in maintaining disease. And, and again, nobody wants to talk about that, but it's true. You know, it's true. If we resolve, this, if we resolve the disease for $10,000, $20,000, 
it's like industries will fail. So, so th th there is that. Um, I'm not saying that happens all the time, but, but I, 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 for one, know of a couple surgeons in the Chicago area uh, that, that do an incredible amount of inappropriate. One, one of the surgeons lives in, I think, a tw hey, I have nothing wrong if you make a lot of money, but, making t but it's living in a $12 million house because 90% of your surgeries are unnecessary. Something wrong with that, right? So he reminds me of like John Wick or something. You know, it's like someone who goes out and hurts people. <laughs> anyway, um, I'll talk to you about, about Kaiser afterwards. Any questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've, we've seen those done actually on, um, on patients. Uh, some people have actually responded to those. So some people respond to those, some people have not. For musculoskeletal, I think the cord blood doesn't work as well for musculoskeletal. But, um, but again, when you're, when you're taking blood-derived stem cells and you're introducing them into the blood, uh, we have actually seen some results. And you know, one of the biggest places we've seen results, uh, because 50% of those are taken up by the lungs right away. So we've actually seen results with uh, COPD and emphysema and things like that. Um, in fact, uh, I, it was one of my things to do if I get downtime this week was to compile some of that data and, and for publication. But, um, so it's not that cord blood is necessarily all bad. In certain situations, it can be great, like, for example, like lung diseases. Yeah, like I wouldn't use cord blood for the osteoarthritis of the knee. I'd use other, other cellular uh, products or other growth factor products. <clears throat> it, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the price is going to be about the same. So it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, for the knee, you just inject the knee. Yeah, which is, which is, which is crazy because, because like, like literally I'm one of the pioneers, I feel. And I don't even charge that much. And we're using legitimate products. And, we're, and, and our cost is with fluoroscopy, at the surgery center, with the product, with me injecting, with all this stuff, our cost is even less. So just, and these are the stories. Like there was a chiropractor in the Chicago area who got shut down. Um, multi, you know, multiple people testified. Like she would go to retirement homes and, and you know, make all these false statements and so these people were like, oh, wow, so I can walk again, I can do this, I can do that. Like she, she wiped out, she bankrupted a bunch of 70-year-old people who have no chance of ever making any money again. It's disgusting. It just pisses me off, right? And, um, but she didn't do anything illegal because those people signed a dotted line, right? So it's buyer beware. I mean, they bought the product, you know. You know it, she's a great salesman, and they're, you know, gullible. Yeah. Yeah, and th those, are the, those are the challenges we run into because, uh, that, you know, like in certain cases that would be fine, but not in like a knee osteoarthritis case. It doesn't make sense, and, and, and the costs are just, you know. Well, you know, the, the, hey, if it would have worked, that would have been great, but, um, but there are better ways to manage that, I think. And, you know. Well, and also the other thing uh, that I think is worth mentioning is, um, this is not a one-and-done type of situation. So, so you, you have degeneration actively occurring, and you're regenerating. So it could be very possible that it may need to be done again and again and again. So I think that's another reason why it's important to be fair to the patient and sort of say, okay, look, you know what? My product is costing me 5000 bucks. You know, I'm charging you whatever, 500 bucks or 700 whatever my labor is, you know, for that hour. Um, you know, the, the, I mean... 
break it down to the patient, right? Uh, but but ten grand for a chiropractor? I mean, the product doesn't cost ten grand. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well. You, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, the blood products are going to be, are going to cost less. Uh, amniotic fluid, which is what chiropractors use, costs less. And, um, and he, here's actually one place where, where, you know, they could get in a serious trouble because they've called amniotic fluid stem cells. And that's no ifs, ands, or buts, that's fraud. Amniotic fluid, that's not a stem cell product. Yeah, well... <clears throat> He's an expert at something for sure. So, more of an expert than I am, I guess, at certain things. So, my husband actually went to Regenex with Dr. Chenkov. Yeah. Very successful PRP yep. therapy for bilateral arthritis. And now he's having similar shoulders experience. Do you feel in your expertise that he would benefit from a similar? Yeah, yeah, Regenix has a Regenix has, you know, probably the best bone marrow aspirate protocol. Again, Regenix is more of like that franchise model. So like people are using, you know, that protocol. Just like we, we have uh, lipoaspirate, <clears throat> we're using that protocol, but ultimately, you know, the physicians that are doing it, you, know, you have a protocol, but at the end of the day, it's just like it's just like any other procedure, right? It's like I could use a medical device, but how I use that medical device. So um, so their protocol, I think, is a legitimate bone marrow aspirin protocol, you know. And, and then, of course, you look at who is that physician doing it. Is it if it's if it's a you know if it's uh, the physician that you know and trust, then that, that's great. But if you're just doing it at some other potential practice, you know, are they going to be doing it correctly and all that stuff? But regardless, that, that's a that's a well um, um, established program, and uh, they have you know they they also. They have a lot of data to support what they do. They've also had um, uh, you know, all stem cell providers and clinics have been in, quote, hot water, if you will, in the sense that um, everyone's trying to, uh, you know, people don't know the difference, right, between good and bad. So, so you look at the media and you look at whatever, and they'll just go attack everybody who's within that sector without knowing any better. And there are bad players in each sector, too. So, so there was one within our network uh, which is a self-surgical network, some lady down in uh, Miami who decided to inject someone's eyeball. They went blind. It's like, Jesus Christ. It's not our protocol. It's like, why the hell? Are you, like, what are you doing? So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we've seen it. I mean, we've seen it. So it, it could. Again, it may not. But, uh, but very well could. It very well could. I mean, everybody is different. So this is, this is again, going back to the whole problem with um, FDA approval, calling it a drug and all this stuff. Look, if the protocol is valid, which uh, Regenix protocol is absolutely valid, our protocol is absolutely valid, there are companies, which I won't say which ones, that make products um, that are absolutely valid. Uh, there are some that are not, and I wanted to make sure we pointed out at least two out of those 20 that the F 21 that the FDA has identified. Um, if we are using legitimate stuff, and you are an experienced, legitimate provider, right, that knows how to do this stuff. If it fails at that point, it's just because it, it's, it's not going to work, or maybe you have to do it twice, right? Um, everyone's different. Everyone's different. Yeah. No, so everyone's different. So I would say you, gotta, you have to give it at least a couple months. 
so, so the, okay, great. So, yeah, but you have, like, so some, some clinics will say, uh, and maybe even that one, they'll say, oh, you've got to come in every week or every two weeks. And it's like, no, you've got to give it time to actually work. It's not a drug, remember? You're trying to read your... So, so I always tell patients, listen, I'd prefer to give it three months, really six months, but no sooner than even three months. We won't even repeat it because we'll just say, you haven't even given it a chance to work yet. Um, uh, but whatever, three months, six months, whatever it is, and then, and then you know, if the patient wants to have that repeated, I, th- I, I don't think that's an issue. Again, assuming that you know, it's, a, it's an appropriate candidate and blah, 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 right? Assuming all the normal assumptions. Um, yeah, I, and I, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. It's much better than having a shoulder replacement. I'll tell you, if it was me, I would absolutely do that before any type of shoulder replacement or surgery. That, that's a huge success, absolutely, because during those two years, he's doing stuff. He's actively degenerating that area. That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So, I think that's that, that's a huge success. And and if you could just do an injection like that, one, let's say once a year for the rest of your life, what's the downside? Why not? The downside is just maybe it costs money, but outside.